new series called Three Crosses, and uh, kind of in the Easter season leading up to Easter, it's um, so close, I'm really excited about Easter. But I wanted to start this morning by showing you a couple of logos of some companies that maybe you would recognize and see if you would happen to recognize any of these companies and maybe what it means, what they mean. Let's look at the first one. What is, what is that? Nike, yeah. And what does it represent? Shoes, yeah. Actually, yeah, the, the word Nike is, comes from a Greek word which means victory. And it kind of symbolizes this, the wing is what that is. Off of, it's a stylized representation of a wing off of the wing goddess of victory. So if you wear Nike shoes, you will win. <laughs> victory, victory, success. All right, let's look at the next one. See if you recognize that one. Really, what gave it away? Apple, right, and what does that represent? <laughs> yeah, creativity and information and technology, and, and never before have we lived in, a, in a, the information age, and Apple is helping usher that in, and so it, it represents knowledge. You know, if you use that, you're going to be more hip and creative and knowledgeable. All right, let's look at the next one. Does anybody know what that is? Someone in the last service said, America. <laughs> oh, help us, God. It represents, it's McDonald's, right? And it represents happiness, right? The happy meal. That if you go there, you're going to be happy. It's a happy place, happy for your kids. And, you know, pleasure, indulgence. All right, let's look at the next one. Quaker, Quaker oats. Yes, since 1901. And if you eat Quaker oats, it represents stability and power and strength. Eat your oats, people. All right. Those are the logos I wanted to show you. And think about Christianity now for a moment. There's this symbol, this logo that we use that you see in churches and on steeples and on T-shirts and cemeteries, tombstones. Everybody understands what it is. It's... It's a cross, right? The cross. Because it's become so common. I mean, you can't go anywhere. You can't probably go through a day and not see several of these. I mean, we wear it as jewelry. We, 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 we think about it. We talk about it. But where did it come from? Have you ever thought about that? Where did this image come from? What does it mean? This was initially uh, a means of execution. It was a very real way to kill people. It's understood to have been developed by the Persians and then used by Alexander the Great, but the Romans are the ones who actually really perfected its torture in squelching rebellion in their realm and kingdom. And so not only was it a very painful way to die, it was also very humiliating because it was public and people were stripped and they were in excruciating pain. The word excruciating comes from the Latin word crucifixion. So this is the image that's come to be known to represent Christianity, the church. Now think how strange that is. Here you have this struggling little New Testament early church 
a group of people, and they're wanting other people to follow Jesus, and they're, they're wanting their little band of people to grow larger, maybe even into a worldwide movement to attract people. And instead of coming up with a logo that represents success or power or pleasure or happiness, they come up with one that represents scandal, failure, and death. Now, why on earth would, in their little huddle of figuring out their branding, would they have come up with a cross that represents all of that? Imagine with me if maybe Avista was hiring a marketing consultant who advised them to make their primary logo into like a little electric chair, and underneath it, it would say, the power's on, you know? <laughs> you might fire that person. It's a little crazy. The heart and the soul of Christianity, it's not, it's not about just serving each other. It's not about just praying or giving or reading the Bible or gathering together like this on a Sunday morning. All of these things are important, but they are not at the heart and the soul of what it means to be a Christian. It's not really about us. It's not about the things we do. It's not about our religion. The heart and the soul of Christianity is what God has done on the cross. That's the heart and the soul. That is the message. That is the center of our faith. The message of the cross is where the power of your faith really comes to bear. The Apostle Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 1.17. He said, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel." not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross is where the, the power source of God really springs from. Why did Jesus have to go to the cross? I mean, why did he have to die this painful death on the cross? Why not just forgive and forget? Let bygones be bygones, you know? Nobody has to get hurt here. Let's just give the human race a mulligan, you know? In the beginning, though, God made the heavens and the earth, and he made human beings, and he made animals. He made everything in this perfect world, everything in balance, no sin, no grief, no pain, no murder, just this loving God, loving his creation, and his creation loving him back. And God gave a simple commandment. He, he, he opened up all kinds of choices, good choices, thousands of things that Adam and Eve could do. He asked them not to do one thing, to eat of a certain tree. And yet the, we, we see in that garden, Satan shows up in the form of a serpent. He tempts Eve. She ends up breaking the one commandment that God told her not to do. Adam and Eve partook of that, and they ended up experiencing death like, like God said they would. They experienced inner death, separation from God, a break of fellowship. And all of a sudden, the world began to experience degradation, and it began to decay. And sure, not all at once, not in that moment, but over time. And sin permeated. See, it doesn't take a rocket science scientists to look around at our earth and look at our world today and go, man, something's wrong. I mean, think of all of the news, how much of it's happy and good news. 
I mean, so much of it is so sad and tragic and, and, and grievous. As you look out and you go, something is wrong with this world. Jeremiah said it this way. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. Who knows it? That the prophet Jeremiah was saying something is not just wrong with the world out there. Something's wrong with the world in here. And a holy and a just God cannot cuddle up next to sin, pretend it's not there. A holy and just God cannot ignore sin and let it go without judgment. See, if God allowed all the evils done in this world to go unpunished, what would this world be? It would be unjust, completely. When I was 16 years old, I planned this backpacking trip up into the mountains, the Rincon Mountains outside of Tucson, Arizona, and it's in the Saguaro National Park. And so you start off at the bottom uh, of, of in just desert, super hot, really dry, and it's a very difficult, rocky, hot and dry hike all the way up to this place called Douglas Springs, six miles. And when you get up there, you, you know, it's just beautiful. There's this oak woodland. There's several seasonal springs for water. There, but it's such a pretty place. There's, it's delicate. You're not allowed to build fires. You're not allowed to, to throw trash. You're only allowed, they only give out a couple permits. You have to camp in designated places. And I was pretty surprised when we started this particular backpacking trip that my four friends that I had invited on this trip with me showed up with a five-gallon can of gasoline in one hand a boombox in the other hand. Another guy had a cooler with beer in it and Jim Beam. And someone else brought some food. And, and they, they're bringing all this. And I'm going, what are you guys doing? Leave all that stuff in the car. They're like, no, we're going to party. We're... And I tried to explain. I tried to talk them out of it. But they ended up hauling all this stuff up to Douglas Springs. Well, that night, we got up there around 9 at night. We set up, and first thing one of the guys does is he rips out one of these beautiful little oak trees. He breaks it up, throws his gas on top of it, lights it on fire, big blazing bonfire. Someone else cranks the boom box, and they start blaring music for the other campers to enjoy. <laughs> the beers are, are being poured, Jim Beam, food, trash going everywhere, bottles being broken. I didn't, I was uncomfortable. I didn't like it, but I didn't stop it. I mean, I sat there at the fire. I warmed myself at their fire. I drank some of their drink. I ate some of their food. In the morning, around seven in the morning, a forest stranger shows up. And he's ticked. He's angry. He's really mad. And, 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 and he's, he had heard from other backpackers that there were these rowdies that were up there kind of abusing the camp area. And so he says, you guys are under arrest. I'm going to arrest you. You're going to go right down to the bottom, and the police will be waiting for us, and you're going to jail. I mean, we, I'm arresting you for what you've done. And I'm thinking, I, I didn't do anything. It's these guys that did it all, you know? And, and so this guy, he has no gun. He has a, a radio. And my friends are starting to talk about kind of jumping this guy because he only had one arm. And so <laughs> it's true. And I don't know why, maybe a bear attack or something. Who knows? But they're thinking, this guy's vulnerable. We're going we're gonna to pounce on him. We're going to tie him up, and we're going to run off. We're not going to go to jail. We're over this thing. And I talked him out of it. And so we, he ushers us down 
to the very bottom. The police are there. We go to the courthouse, and we're arrested. And I thought to myself, I'm going to talk my way out of this. You know, I'm gonna, I didn't do anything. And so as I'm trying to talk my way out of it, I was informed that I was going to be charged with the very same thing that they were. Because there were sins of commission and there are sins of omission. The ones my friends did, overt, very clear, something that they had done. The ones that I had done had to do with what I didn't do, didn't report it, didn't demand that they stop. And I participated in some of it, even though it wasn't me that initiated it. And so we picked up trash on that trail for the next three months under supervision. Was the sentence fair? Certainly it was. I probably deserved a horse whipping too. But that's how 16-year-olds think, right? Not all of them, but I did. And, and without judgment, there would be nothing but unjustness. And sin demands a penalty that must be paid. The Bible tells us in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, we've all blown it in one way or another, either sins of commission, things we've actually done, or sins of omission. The Bible also says in Romans, there is none righteous, no, not one. It's easy when you compare yourself, like I was doing, to other people to come out looking pretty good, right? I mean, your intentions are better probably than the person sitting next to you. At least we feel that way about ourselves. We look out at other people that are doing really bad stuff, and, and we come out feeling pretty good. Hey, I do good things. I, I actually give to people. I help people. I serve people. I'm a nice person. But the, the thing that God wants us to all understand is that we're, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of his perfection. We've all lied. We've all snubbed God. We've all hurt others. We've all broken at least one of his commandments. We're all sinners in need of a Savior, every single one of us. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, the cross, admitting that we have blown it and that we need a Savior, for some people, feels like a weakness. It feels like, I'm not, I'm not going there. I'm not admitting that. I don't need to do that. The cross looks stupid. It looks foolish. Many people see the, the cross as foolishness because they, they think that, man, the answer is in knowledge. The answer is in science. The answer is in having more money being distributed to the right people. The answer is through government. The answer is through military. The answer is through education. And yet, we're looking out there for the answer. And where does the problem really lie? The problem lies within the human heart. It lies right inside here. And until we solve the issue of the heart, the issue of our soul, We'll never solve all the problems that exist out there. And thus the cross. That's why God sent his one and only son to this world to deal with the issue of our hearts and our souls, to deal with our sin, to deal with the fact that we've been separated from a holy God. See, he spilt, Jesus spilt his blood on the cross, paying the penalty for all of our moral debt. Someone had to pay. Someone had to incur the penalty. And God sent his only son, Jesus, to do that for you and me, that we could be brought back into this relationship with our loving God and we could experience new life 
We could break the bonds of sin in our own life, and we could live on into eternity with the hope of heaven. See, at the cross, Jesus forgives you instantly. In Isaiah 55, 7, the scripture says God is merciful and he's quick to forgive. God is quick to forgive. It doesn't say that, hey, I want you to suffer a little while. Most of us, we have a hard time forgiving. I know I do. And when someone's hurt me or violated me in some way, you know, I don't want to forgive them instantly. That just seems way too easy for for them, right? Let them grovel a little. Let them suffer. Let them meditate on their sin for a year or two, you know? (laughs) Let them experience some pain. They deserve it. But God is not that way, and I'm glad that he's not. He forgives you instantly. The moment you come to the cross and you say, God, I am a sinner. I need you. I've blown it. I ask for your forgiveness. Boom, he gives it to you in that instant. He doesn't rub your face in it. He wants to rub your sin out. That's what the blood of Jesus does. See, at the, at the cross, Jesus Christ also forgives you completely. That means that every sin in your life, notice in this verse in Colossians 2, He has forgiven all your sins. He has utterly wiped out the evidence of broken commandments, which always hung over our heads. And he has completely annulled it by nailing it to the cross. Jesus Christ was nailed to that cross so that you wouldn't have to be. Jesus was nailed to that cross so that you can quit nailing yourself to it. In other words, you can forgive yourself. God forgives you. You can let it go too. And he wants, he wants us to know he forgives us instantly, and he forgives us completely. How many sins? All sins, past, present, and future. When Jesus hung on the cross, you'll remember in those excruciating last moments of his life, he breathed, it is finished. In other words, paid in full, complete. The work of Jesus Christ at the cross was a completed work one in which we can't do anything to earn any extra points. Jesus has done it, and it's complete in your life. At the cross, Jesus also freely forgives us. In other words, you'll never be able to earn it. You can't deserve it. You can't do enough good things. can't read your Bible enough, go to church enough, serve the poor enough. There's something where we just need to be in this receiver place with our hands open, saying, God, I need you. It's called humility. It's called honesty. It was free but not cheap. It cost Jesus everything. The cross has the power to melt the proudest heart with the message of a loving God because inside we all really want to experience that love. We we want something to deal with the guilt that we experience from our sin. We need something to deal with that And and to be freed from its power. And we crave the love of God. Romans 5.8 says God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I don't know where there is a better picture of love than the love that you see at the cross with Jesus who came. He initiated the relationship. He left heaven, his dominion, his glory. He came to this earth. He lived as a man. He died on a cross. And he did it for you. And he did it for me. That's the power of the cross. When you look at the cross of Christ, we see such amazing love displayed 
that we can sing with the old hymn writer Isaac Watts, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. See, the cross demands a response. It's not apathetic. It was completely relevant. And it's something that demands a response from you and me. In a moment, Cooper's going to come up and lead us in uh, the communion experience. Before he does, though, let's just prepare our hearts in some worship.